chosen lover. When I went bad, then God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover. When I went bad, then God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Boom, five. morning everybody hope you guys are doing well this morning someone asked in the chat does anyone know what the song is yeah that's my uh, my son and I recorded a fun song it's not officially out there on like Spotify or anything but um, if you'd like to reach out to me I'd be happy to send it to you it's a fun song we uh, made to help him memorize scripture guys we all know people that um, frankly don't look like they're alive <laughs> like they have breath in their lungs they're absolutely walking around and existing but there's no sense of purpose no sense of meaning. They're almost like zombies going through the same everyday experience, the, the monotony of everyday life. Uh, they wake up, do the same thing, go to sleep. There's almost no kind of life within them. They're just merely existing. And maybe some, some of you are that kind of people. Maybe it's you. I mean, this is the story of our culture. The story of our culture is one of there's no sense of purpose. There's no sense of meaning. If there is, it's, it's falsely assigned. If there is, it's a false sense of what purpose and meaning really is. Well, we, we live in a culture, primar primarily in America, where people are so bored and out of their minds that they're just going to go out and, and, and destroy other people's lives, take the lives of other people out of frustration, anger, maybe a sense of, I'm dissatisfied, so I want to end the lives of those around me. We all know people who it looks like, you know, they're existing, they're alive, but there's no sense of abundant life. There's no purpose and meaning behind what they're doing. And maybe you are that kind of person. I mean, imagine being the kind of person that spends your whole life uh, chasing things that promise you abundant, satisfying life, only to leave you empty-handed, only to leave you empty and dry and dissatisfied and confused and frustrated and despairing. And I hope that today you'll understand that true abundant life is found in the person of Jesus. He is life. Like we lack life without Christ. We lack meaning and purpose without Christ. We, act, we lack everything that we're made to experience in this human life as image bearers of God. We lack that without Jesus. We lack substantial, abundant, eternal life that goes beyond merely existing. And the best way to actually enjoy uh, a life of satisfaction and purpose and meaning, abundant life, is to actually understand the one who is life. And what it means that he is our very life in scripture for now and eternity. And this is going to require us to start in the Old Testament to build a, a brief summary of what it looks like for life um, to be portrayed in the scriptures. Okay. So I'm going to take you to John 14. Just to remind you, Jesus does say, hey, if you uh, had known me, you would know this. 
I am the way and the truth and the life, is what Jesus says. He doesn't say he is a life. He doesn't say he's one way of getting into life. He says he is the exclusive only way into life and the life itself. So Jesus is presenting himself as the personification of life, the source of life, the essence of life, the very definition and substance of life itself. He is, he is what life is. And so we're going to see in the Old Testament that there's going to be a placeholder starting in Genesis for one who is going to be life and offer us the life that we forfeited in the garden. Okay, so we got to start all the way back in Genesis and then we'll work our way into the New Testament. And then you're going to see, hopefully, throughout this, I know this can get very heady and intellectual. I know it can get very theologically deep and, and the well is deep. Okay, I'm not even going to go into the depths that I could. Okay, all we're doing is a brief overview of life in the scriptures and we're going to connect that all to Jesus and say he is life. Not like he's just the one who gives life. Not just he's the one who makes our life great. He is life itself. And when you understand what that looks like in the scriptures, you better understand what it means to have a fulfilling, satisfying life. You understand what it means to live effectively and have purpose and substance and meaning rather than just existing and, and being drowned by the monotony of everyday life and it's boring and I kind of want to end my life. You can actually escape that and find your way out of that by clinging to Jesus daily who is life. But we have to see who he really is in light of scripture. In, in light of this presentation of what life is, Jesus fits in that slot. And so starting in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to see the very uh, uh, original purpose behind humanity and the image bearers of God that he created. Genesis chapter 2 verse 9, okay, we're going to see the tree of life first. Out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. That's kind of a foreshadowing of how Eve will qualify the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3. The tree of life. We're going to start this message with the tree of life. We're going to end it with the tree of life in Revelation. But for now, Genesis 2 tells us the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And also, dun, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you have two options, life or to know good and evil apart from God, not trust him, trust in yourself, disobey him and rebel like Adam and Eve, or you can cling to life. So the tree of life is in the midst of the garden. Okay. And as we explore this idea of life within the Old Testament, again, you're going to see this placeholder, almost like this, this slot that Jesus is going is to fit into perfectly. It's going to develop over time as the one who brings life. But for now in Genesis 2, we see that the tree of life is there to, to really show us, look, this is a, whether it's an actual or symbolic representation of what life is, or it's an actual reality of life, no matter what, it's what God offers his image bearers, life. Okay. Go down to verse 17. Uh, God commands uh, the man, Adam, Adam, says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. This doesn't mean that Eve did not know. Okay, this just here in Genesis 2, we see God specifically telling uh, man, um, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Now, technically, the word man, Adam, can actually refer to both man and woman for sure. So there's potential for that here. God is actually telling humanity, his chosen vessels, image bearers in the earth, hey, you can eat from any tree of the garden. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, though, don't eat from that. Don't eat from that. In the day you do, you'll die. You'll die. Question becomes, hmm, um, why is it that uh, Adam and Eve did not die, okay, even though God said they would? Well, they do. They do in a, in a way that's kind of, uh, you miss it if you misdefine life. So they do die. 
they're actually removed. And we'll see this in Genesis chapter 3. So, but, but now understand this. Uh, the loss of life or death, that's what results from sin. Because Adam and Eve, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that would be a violation of the law God gave. The command, the rule. God said don't. They do it. That's rebellion. Right? So by sinning, they're bringing death into the world. So that would be <clears throat> death here, okay, is to be cut off from life, which you're going to see that Adam and Eve are going to be cut off. Humanity is going to be cut off from the tree of life. That's the consequence of sin. They're kicked out of the garden presence of God as the main form of death. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, we see this actually happen. <clears throat> They're actually removed from the garden. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Okay. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Like, so that that doesn't happen. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden. It was protection. So that Adam and Eve would not eat from the tree of life and stay in that condition they were in forever, which is to be separated from God because their sin separates them. So to exist in that condition eternally is the worst possible scenario. <laughs> That's a fate worse than actually physically dying. So the Lord God sent him out of the garden <clears throat> to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, the cherubim, and a flame, flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What is it mainly that Adam and Eve no longer have access to? Well, number one, it's the actual garden presence of the living God. Number two, whether the tree of life is to be symbolic of that or almost distinct in a way from God's presence himself, they're also cut off from the tree of life. So no matter what, the two are inextricably connected. To have God is to have life. To be cut off from God is to be cut off from life. And the tree of life seems to be representative of that. That Adam and Eve are removed from the actual garden presence, life-giving, satisfying presence of God in the garden. They're removed from that because sin can't exist in perfect you know, communion with God. That's not possible. Light can't coexist with dark. Their sin can't dwell in the presence of the Almighty. So humanity is cut off from eternal life. They're cut off from the tree of life, which, which is mainly, again, uh, we don't want to make this so much about the tree that it's like we, we forget God. God in his presence, yeah, that, that is the substance of eternal life, as we'll see in John 17. Okay? So, go with me to Leviticus 17. I'll give you guys a couple minutes to get there, and we're there. Leviticus 17.11, it says, The life of the flesh is in the blood. Here we have God giving the law to the people of Israel through Moses. Part of that is an understanding that, hey, Know this, and God did tell this to Noah back in Genesis 9, but he's kind of reiterating it. The life of the flesh or of the creature, the creature's life is wrapped up in the blood. And I've given it for you on the altar. So the sacrificial system God gives to Israel as a gift for them to actually participate in, you know, uh, the opportunity to have God dwell among them. So they're actually participating in that. They're able to bring offerings and sacrifices. So the animal sacrificial system... Um, is, is all about the life of the creature being summed up by the blood which is shed to make atonement for the souls of the people. In other words, here's the ritual cleansing that allows God to dwell or allows the people of Israel to actually dwell in the midst of God which he's found in the tabernacle, he's found in the temple, he's found you know, where he chose to make his dwelling in the Ark of the Covenant. That's symbolic of his presence among the people. So for that to actually take place, there has to be an atoning of the ritual impurity that, that happens every single year with the people. 
That's the day of atonement. So it's the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now hold on to that. Because remember, sin results in the loss of life. Right? So, so death is the consequence of sin. And death is not just physically we die and perish. Now we're mortal. Now, death defines biblically is you're cut off from God. He's the source of life. He's the essence of life. You're cut off from Him. You don't have life apart from Him. You have nothing but darkness and destruction and death and chaos and everything you don't want. That's found outside the garden presence of God. And so to go back into the garden is going to require something or someone to take care of the sin that keeps us out. And so that's why we start to see this slow incremental movement towards the one who does solve sin. But it starts with the Levitical sacrificial system, which is that, hey, in this is a picture of sin results in loss of life. Sin takes away life, it results in death. So to remind the people of Israel of that reality, that they're cut off from God, you know, in a perfect sense. He is among them in a temporary sense that's not ideal, right? He's moving us towards the ideal, but he is among them. And in that is a picture that, look, sin is very serious. And it actually cost the life of the creature atoning for your ritual impurity. So go down to verse 14. It said, the life of every creature is its blood. So not only is the life of a creature wrapped up in its blood, it's actually synonymous with the blood. The blood is not only symbolic of the life of the creature, but life is found in the blood. When you have a loss of blood, you have a loss of life. So the life of every creature, creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. And that's why God tells the people of Israel, don't eat the blood of any creature. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. So now we're <clears throat> starting to see in Leviticus, we're starting to see a placeholder for Jesus start to develop. And maybe we'll, we'll you know, not get ahead of ourselves. We'll say this. We're starting to see a picture develop of someone who is going to solve our problem of death and bring us back into life. But it has to include some kind of shedding of blood to make atonement for sin and darkness and evil and the wickedness that stains us and keeps us out from the garden presence of God. Someone has to deal with that. It has to be the greater sacrifice. Like what John says of Jesus, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is going to fill all these different slots that have to do with the one who is life and offers life. Okay, He's going to give his blood or life to atone for our sin to bring us back into the garden presence of God. So Deuteronomy chapter 30, we see God make <clears throat> a pretty startling statement through uh, Moses. Okay, Deuteronomy 30. It says, see, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. Moses is presenting the terms of the covenant. Once again, he's reaffirming the Sinai covenant um, to the people of Israel. Okay, he's reaffirming that. And God, through Moses, is saying, I've presented before you life and death, right? Good and evil. They're almost standing before their own opportunity that Adam and Eve had. Remember? Adam and Eve are faced with, will you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and die? Or will you trust God and live and continue eating from the tree of life? Which, whether that's symbolic or actually happening, no matter what, they're connected to God who is life. So God presents the same essential, essentially the same option for Israel. But this time it's through the terms of the covenant and the actual laws that, that, that kind of accompany that covenant, which is, hey, if you want life and goodness, I'm setting it before you. If you obey the commandments of the Lord that I command you today by loving the Lord, 
It's not just about mindlessly doing stuff with the detached heart that's not involved. It's, it's a love for God expressed in obedience by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules. Then you shall live and multiply, which is the, the same general call on humanity in Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Uh, he, he goes on, look, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. God's actually giving you uh, the answer to the test. He's saying, I'm presenting before you life and death. Choose life. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, holding fast to him. That's, that's the main point that I'm trying to drive home already. Getting, we're not even at Jesus yet. But I'm trying to get you to understand that the life is presented to humanity in the form of cling to God. And you go, I don't know how to practically do that. Well, just do what he says. Like by actually doing what he says and obeying, you're holding fast to him. You're saying, you know better than me. You're wiser than me. You're stronger than me. You can secure my life better than I can. And so I'm going to hold fast to you by doing what you say. And look at this. This is very, very revealing about what we'll see uh, Jesus is in the New Testament. Now look at what he says. He is your life. Now God is not just presented as the one who offers life. He's actually presented to Israel as the one who is the substance of their very life and their length of days. So not just physically, but in an eternal sense, he's, he's our spiritual life. He's our eternal life. And he offers us real abundant life here too, right? Which is that we can have abundant, long life. You know, that's a promise given to Israel. So that you may dwell in the land the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. So in reaffirming the Sinai covenant and by giving the Mosaic law, uh, we see that God is actually the life of his people. So God sets before them life and death. The way of life and the way of death, again, are presented to Israel and these commands outline what it looks like for them to, to match their lives up with God. In other words, the commands of God give clear instruction on what it looks like to cling to God who is our life. So the laws simply outline for Israel what it looks like to stay near to the one who is, is their life. So the commands are not the life. He says the commands will be life to you in terms of they will lead you into the proximity of the one who is your life, but the commandment themselves aren't the ones that truly give substantial life. It's God, what leads us to him. And the commandments direct us to him. The problem is no one can actually do what the law requires. The law, as we've seen throughout our study on the law, <laughs> we've seen that the law actually exposes our inability. The law doesn't show you how good you need to be so you can go and do it and earn your way to heaven. The law shows you how you need to be perfect so you realize you can't do it. So that you look to the one who has done it for you. And so now we've, we see another characteristic of life which is that whoever is going to bring life back to us, since we can't go back in the garden, someone has to bring that life to us, whoever that is, okay? He has to perfectly embody the ways of life by following the Torah perfectly. 
since the Torah leads into what is substantial life and actually outlines what it looks like to cling to God and stay close to him. Well, now Jesus, or whoever is going to offer life, he has to do that perfectly to actually be the life-giving force that we need. Not even just an impersonal force. Don't put words in my mouth. But he, ha- he is, in fact, giving us the uh, life force that we need, spiritual life. Deuteronomy 32, 47. Again, talking about this law, watch. It is no empty word for you. Your very life. So by this word, you'll live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. So, you know, Moses kind of qualifies what he means. Look at uh, Israel. Listen, your decision to obey the law or not is going to make or break your uh, future as a nation in the promised land. If you reject the laws of God, it will result in you guys getting exiled. And that happens. Or if you actually obey God, it will actually be your long life. It will be like the reason you guys get to experience abundant life in the promised land. Okay, so uh, while the law outlines not just what it looks like to have a full life here on earth, but also shows us what we need to do to actually effectively get to God who is eternal life, right? Uh, We can't do that. It's not possible. The law exposes sin. The law exposes your inability. Not how good you can be apart from God, but how good you cannot be without him. So that you cling to him who can make you good enough. Um, uh, Job chapter 12 verse 10. Job says, in God's hand is life. Not just like a general sense of life, but in his hand is the life of everything. Every living thing and the breath of all mankind sovereignly in the hand of God. So God owns life. All possible life in existence, he possesses it, has his name on it, it's his. So the one who grants life, like whoever it is that is going to grant life to humanity, once again, he also must be the one who has authority over life. And if you have authority over life, you are going to be the substance and the source of life itself. So God has all life he possesses and owns it because it comes from him. He's the source of it all. He's the essence of life. So let me give you a few kind of things in Psalm 119, and then we'll jump to the New Testament after a couple verses. Um, we'll do Psalm 119, then we'll go to Daniel, and we'll get Jonah. Then we'll open this up and let Jesus perfectly connect to all these things. In Psalm chapter 119, not to be confused with Psalm chapter 1, verse 19, Psalm chapter 119, verse 25. This is all about the beauty of the law, the beauty of the righteous decrees and statutes and rules of God. You know, David says, my soul clings to the dust. Um, Give me life according to your word, your word. So uh, I just want to show you a few things about life. Okay, in, in Psalm 119, lets us know that God actually gives life according to his word. It's a spoken thing. It's directly connected to what he has said. Okay, and that's why we'll see in, in the New Testament that not only is Jesus going to be the one who offers life and is life, but he also is the embodiment and the actual eternal word emanating from the Father. He is the word that brings life. Uh, Psalm chapter 119, verse 40 says, Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. So life is not only connected to the word of God, but the righteousness of God. And that's why Jesus is going to be referred to as the righteous one. In 1 John, he's the righteous one. Not just a righteous one, the exclusive and only perfectly righteous one. 
Now, verse 50, it says, this is my comfort in my affliction. Your promise gives me life. That's kind of the idea where the word of God offers life. It's found in the word of God. Substance and life and, and meaning, that's wrapped up in what God has spoken. You can either obey that or not. But Jesus comes as the embodiment of the word, the Torah, right? And he actually perfectly personified word of God emanating from the Father. He gives life as also the fulfillment of God's promises. Like all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. And so not only is life connected to righteousness and, and promise and, um, or righteousness in the word of God, but the promises God has made. Verse 88, it says, In your steadfast love give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. And so it is, when God offers life, he's really loving. He's loving. So the love of God drives his decision to offer life to his people. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Verse 156 says, Give me life according to your rules. This is the psalmist crying out for life. And he knows that's only going to happen because God is great in mercy. So the mercy of God is attached to the life we have. So we see the mercy of God, the love of God, the promise of God, the righteousness of God, and the word of God all kind of finding their connection point in this thing we call life, substantial life. And Jesus is going to personify all these different attributes. He is the love of God manifest. He is mercy and righteousness. He is the fulfillment of every promise. He's the ultimate promised one in Genesis chapter 3. Right? He is the word of God personified, emanating from the Father to bring life. And then we go to Proverbs chapter 3. It talks all about wisdom. I might seem like I'm rushing a bit through the Old Testament. Um, I have, I counted, I think it's like between 45 and 50 passages of scripture to get to. So that's kind of why it seems like it's rushed because this is just kind of building the anticipation. You're supposed to get a, almost an angst in your heart where you go, Who, where's this life coming from? Who is he? And you're going to see, but we have to kind of build these things out first and lay the foundation. Proverbs 3, it says, long life is in her right hand. This is referring to wisdom. Wisdom is personified uh, symbolically with a metaphor of a woman. Okay, that doesn't mean um, wisdom is actually a woman. The point is that lady wisdom is contrasted with the one who is uh, lady foolishness or lady folly, like adultery. And it's almost like you have the tree of life being contrasted with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in Proverbs 3, it's wisdom and it's, it's folly. Um, so Proverbs 3, long life is in her right hand, wisdom. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Now watch, look at the language. It says that wisdom is a tree of life. Now what exactly did God explicitly say in Genesis 3, explicitly say, that Adam and Eve were cut off from? Well, he put some uh, cherubim in front of the garden to keep them out so they don't eat from the tree of life. And now here we have Solomon saying, you know, wisdom is actually a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Now, if you remember back in, uh, I think it was Deuteronomy, it says to hold fast to God. He's your life, right? He's your very life. Not only the commands that he gives, but the one who is life, he calls us to cling to him. And so now Proverbs telling us to cling to wisdom. Not that we have to choose because God is the essence of wisdom, as we already saw in I think two episodes ago, we talked about how Jesus is wisdom. And so wisdom now is presented as the tree of life that humanity can't eat from, right, anymore because sin. But there's almost like glimpses into that through walking wisely. 
Like, it's not like you can attain the, the highest extent of life by just living wisely. You can't get to God through just living wise, right? But I can trust in Jesus, um, who is perfect, and we'll get to that. But for now, before Jesus comes in Proverbs, he didn't come yet. So there's, there's these glimpses into almost like, hey, we're starting to see maybe a glimmer of hope that humanity can get back into the garden. But until then, right, God's giving like, a little piece of that in the form of wisdom. I just walk wisely, walk according to my ways and my word. And that will be a, that will be life for you. you lay hold of wisdom. Those who hold her fast are called blessed, right? And so Proverbs, beautiful. We could spend quite a long time just talking about life in Proverbs and the Psalms. But I got to get to Daniel because Daniel makes um, a statement about the future uh, eschatology right? For you scholars and theologians. You nerds like me. Many of those who sleep in the dust, this is Daniel chapter 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Okay, this is referring to the actual day of judgment. Um, some to everlasting life. This is what Romans touches on. Some will be awakened to shame and everlasting contempt. What a sudden and rude awakening to abruptly be awoken to shame and everlasting contempt. But what a beautiful thing to wake up to everlasting life. Um, and so Daniel looking ahead, um, or uh, at the time shall arise, Michael the great prince, and there shall be at that time your people shall. I believe this is the angel delivering, or it's God speaking. I kind of want to know now. Well, whoever it is. If it's not God, it's one of his messengers telling Daniel what's going to happen. Because essentially he's going to tell Daniel, listen, your time is coming to an end. You don't need to know all the mysteries. Close up the book. Seal it up until the time. Um, there's an indication of the end times right here. And that's all you need to know is that people are going to be awoken to either eternal life or everlasting contempt and shame and what is actual death, which is an eternal separation from God. So the kind of life that we need, that we're anticipating, it's this. It's everlasting. It's never-ending. It's eternal, right? That means for that kind of life to happen and come into our life, <laughs> for us to have that, it has to originate in someone who is in and of himself eternal and everlasting. In other words, the only one who can offer us the life that the garden, the tree of life represented in the garden, the only one who can offer us that is God himself, who is over life and death. Uh, Jonah chapter 2, and I go to Jonah because Jesus will, when the, when the rebellious, unbelieving Jews are like, show us a sign, come on. He goes, I'll give you a sign. It's the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. So essentially, he refers to the resurrection by, by using Jonah as a, as a reference point and going, look at Jonah. That's the sign you're going to get is the resurrection. Jonah chapter 2, this is how Jonah recounts what happened, okay? The waters closed in over me to take my life. This is Jonah recounting what happened as he's drowning. As some people will say he actually did die. And I think that when I read the text, it surely seems like that's what happened. He actually talks about how, uh, I think, uh, the root of the mountains, um, the weeds were wrapped around my head. So he's at the bottom of the ocean, that doesn't sound like a guy who like just kind of passed out for a while. It sounds like a guy who actually might have physically died. 
So just, just read this. You don't, it doesn't matter either way, okay? The point still stands that he's a sign of the resurrection. And it would make more sense that if Jonah's going to testify to the resurrection of Jesus, that he's also going to have died as well. But it doesn't have to be that way. I just think that's consistent. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep, sur- the deep surrounded me, bro. You're in the middle of the ocean and the deep surround you. That doesn't sound like you just fell off a life raft for a couple seconds. This is a guy who went down and under. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. What's the root of the mountains? The bottom of actual land masses. Not just found in the shallow parts of water, bro. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Uh, Maybe referring to Sheol. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Maybe Jonah actually went into the heart of the earth and God swooped him up. You brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Whether Jonah actually died or not, the point is God saved him and brought him up to a new way of life in which he could go and preach the well, repentance to the Gentiles, the Ninevites. So just like Jonah, who brought the message of repentance to the Gentiles, we need someone who's going to be brought up from death to bring the good news of repentance to the Gentiles and the whole world as well. And this is why Jesus is going to refer to Jonah as the sign that he gives to Israel. You know, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you a sign. Jonah. I'll be three days in the heart of the earth as well. Just like Jonah. Okay. So now that you've developed kind of like this, this, this category in the Old Testament for, for the kind of life we need. Right? It's connected to righteousness and the word of God and, and um, uh, the, the laws of God. And it's everlasting. It's connected to wisdom and the tree of life. Um, it's connected to Jonah who actually went down and came up. I think he actually died. It's connected to um, the option that God gives. Adam and Eve were cut off from it. Now that we have all these different characteristics of the kind of life that we need, let's go to Jesus. Okay? Jesus let down a couple sisters, really disappointed them. He actually let their brother die. They came to him and said, hey, our brother's sick. And he goes, cool. I'll come. And he doesn't come for three days. Let's Lazarus die. And now that the time has come for Jesus to go and raise him back to life, he's actually talking to the sisters. And he comes to Martha talking about the resurrection. This is what Jesus says in verse 25. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Now again, when you think of the life, think of what Adam and Eve were cut off from when they left the garden. That tree of life that God kept them away from. The tree of life represents the actual substantial eternal life represented by the God. Like it's summed up in the presence of God. So if you're cut off from the presence of God, you're cut off from life, right? And if you can't meet the perfect law of God, you don't have life. You can't because you're not perfect. And the eternal life God offers his people, which is you being in the family of God and reigning with Christ in the new earth, that's for people who are perfect. The problem is no one is. And so life can't be found and attained by my efforts and by my own good moral behavior. I can't earn it. I can't achieve, I can't earn my way back in the garden. 
I can't get back there by scheming my way in and, and hoping God's going to let me in by the skin of my teeth if I just do enough good and help enough homeless people. That's not going to happen. So we're all cut off. And now Jesus comes in and all the glimpses we see in the Old Testament, he just breaks them open and goes, Martha, like, listen, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet he'll live. It's the kind of idea that you have to die to enter into the life Christ offers, right? Spiritual, eternal life. And we're going to have to put off these mortal bodies. That's physical death. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? He presents it as a question. Makes a statement, a matter of fact, and then goes, So, do you believe it? Jesus is pointing back to the garden presence. The tree of life. What wisdom is, is, is embodying in Proverbs. Right? She's a tree of life to those who take hold of her. What the commandments of God were to kind of uh, represent the life of God. The way into life. Jesus is saying, hands up. Put your hand in the air if you're life. No one can put their hand up except Jesus. And then of course John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now again, he doesn't say a way into life. He doesn't say another kind of life. He doesn't say a variety of life. He says life itself, the definition, personification, essence, source of life, the exclusive life. Jesus is saying, that's me. That's me. The implications are incredible when you understand that Jesus is claiming far more than just some guy who offers a better way of living. <laughs> He's giving us way more. And he is so much more than a moral teacher. Colossians 3, 4, it says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Now again, remember what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 34, or 30. Uh, Moses talking about God, he goes, He is your life. Now hold on. If Jesus is presenting himself to be the life, yet God says, no, I am the life of all creatures. I am life. Well, you either have a contradiction or you have a clear indication that Jesus is truly the eternal word emanating from the Father, God in the flesh. And you got to reconcile that. You can't have both. He's either God or he's not the life. Or there's a contradiction. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you'll appear with him in glory. 1 John chapter 1, I'm just giving you some clear scriptures that let us know. Yeah, Jesus is not just a way into life. He's the only hope. He's the only way back into the garden presence of God. You want to get into the kingdom of heaven? It's only through Jesus. He's the only way. 1 John chapter 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard. This is John testifying as a, as a witness that which we've heard from the beginning, that which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, we've actually touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now again, you go back to Psalm chapter 119 and the psalmist goes, God, give me life according to your word. Now again, the word of God attached is connected to the life of God. And Jesus here is presented as both, where the word of God and the life of God find their connection point is in Jesus. So John, the, you know, 
the visionary in Revelation, John the Apostle, is testifying. We've seen the word of life. We've seen the one who is alongside the Father, yet distinct from the Father, has the same nature as the Father, and is the word emanating from the Father to give life. We've seen him. Verse 2 says, the life was made manifest. The life was revealed, uncovered. It was once hidden, right? Now it's made manifest to humanity. We've seen it, and we testify to it. And now John is saying, we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So at one time, eternal life, you might say what we see symbolically as the tree of life in the garden, that was kept from humanity. That was covered, right? That was a secret mystery that technically we had no right to, right? So instead of us trying to get back into the garden, God goes, oh, don't worry. The life, my garden presence, which was symbolically represented by the tree of life, that I'm bringing to you in my son. So the son comes from the father to be not just the word of God personified with arms and legs and the fulfillment of every promise and prophecy and the Torah with arms and legs. He also comes as the very life of God, which has always been alongside the father in all eternity. And he's now been revealed to us. You can't get any clearer than this, that Jesus is the life. John 11, John 14, Colossians 3, 1 John 1, Go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. Here's how John ends this letter to the church. He says, we know that the Son of God has come. And guess what? He's given us understanding, right? So that, so here's why Jesus brings understanding. You think about when he asks the apostles, who do you say that I am, right? And they go, well, some say uh, Elijah, some say, you know, maybe John the Baptist resurrected, some say you're a prophet. And he goes, okay, that's great. Who do you say I am? And Peter goes, you're the Christ. You're the one we've been waiting for, the son of the living God. There's understanding that was given by the Father. And he goes, hey, you didn't just come up with that, Peter. You ain't that smart. God revealed that to you. So that revelation of Jesus, that revelation of really who Jesus is alongside the Father, that's what's in mind here. He's given us understanding so that we can know him. And this is not just a, uh, uh, a distant knowledge where it's like, I know about someone. I know the facts about them. I have the information memorized. I can pull out any, any fact you want. This is intimacy. This is relationship, familiarity, closeness, proximity. We know him who is true. This is John 17, 3 written all over it. And we'll get there. And we are in him who is true. We are in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We already saw in 1 John 1, Jesus is the eternal life. So whoever is the eternal life, here in chapter 5, verse 20, whoever is the eternal life is also the true God. Right? This, these are exclusive titles, my friends. So you can't be God and not eternal life. You can't be eternal life and not God. To be one is to be the other. So for Jesus to be presented as the eternal life is to point you all the way back to Genesis, where right there is the tree of life, right there is the garden presence of God among humanity. You're supposed to think, oh, huh, John 17, 3. John 17, 3. Go there. This is eternal life. If you want to define life like real, lasting, 
eternal spiritual life. Here's how you define it. To define it any other way is either incomplete or just inappropriate and misunderstood. That doesn't mean you can't characterize eternal life with any other dimension. That is to say, if you don't define it like this, at least you're missing it. This is eternal life. That they know you. This is Jesus in the high priestly prayer praying to the Father. This is eternal life, Father, that they would know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So what is eternal life? It's less about having something in terms of like an object. It's less about getting to a location. It's not about just, hey, we've got to go back to the actual garden. No, it's about actually being in relationship with God. And you and I fundamentally lack that. It's impossible to have that without Jesus. But if you have Christ, who is the eternal life, guess what he offers us? He offers you a way back into and actually a better version of what Adam and Eve had in the garden. Better version. Because now it's not Adam and Eve walking with their creator. It's God abiding in us, filling us with his very abiding eternal presence in his spirit. So that now I'm in him, he's in me, this, this beautiful communion through the Son. That's what Jesus invites us into. He's inviting people into life. He's inviting you into something that transcends your ability to understand and comprehend and achieve, something your performance can't gain you, something all the influence in the world could never offer you, something all the money in the world and all the luxury and all the financial security you could ever have could never give you is eternal life. Something you and all your scheming and all your gaining, all your material possessions and all your, I'm influential, look how many followers I have on Instagram, that's absolutely nothing because it can't give you what Jesus can, which is eternal life, a, an actual way back to the Father, where now it's not just about getting into some actual location and garden, whether that's above the earth, where, however you see that. It's not about getting to some location. It's about coming into relationship with a person because heaven is only heaven because that's where God dwells. That's his, that's his throne. So Jesus says, eternal life is knowing God. And again, this goes beyond just the intellectual understanding and the information. It includes that, but we can't restrict it to that, right? We can't say, well, knowing God is just about the fact. No, I can know all the facts in the world about someone and not personally have a relationship with them. But in order to actually know them in a relationship kind of way, I have to know them better and know about them, right? So yes, the way into relationship is by understanding the truth of God and how he's revealed himself in his word for sure. I'm not disconnecting that. I'm just saying the information and the data itself is to lead us to the feet of Jesus. And if it doesn't, maybe you don't understand it the way you think. We got to end in Revelation chapter 22 because remember I said the way we're starting this is the way we're ending it. In Revelation 22, we're actually going to see the tree of life. And this is what the angel shows John, the apostle. The apostle John says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Do you remember what Jesus offers the woman at the well? Who's like, I would love water so I could never have to come here again. Give me this water that will make me never thirsty again. Jesus offers the living water 
of life. So I think at least we can say that whatever John is seeing is representative of the life Jesus offers, which is the, the overflowing, abundant river of life. Now, to have a tree requires water to actually nourish that. Now, I'm not saying in heaven somehow there is that kind of connection anymore. Maybe there is. But we at least can say that in our physical understanding of the world around us and with the images God uses, he'll usually use our understanding of the world around us, that a tree does require nourishment and water, life. Water is the life of the actual tree. So the angel shows John this living river, water of life thing. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Interesting. So the throne of God is the throne of the Lamb. It's a shared authority and dominion. Uh, Through the middle of the street of the city, it's running. This is Ezekiel's uh, prophecy. Also on either side of the river, watch this. On either side of this river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So here we see the tree of life right here in this image John is seeing. Now you go down to verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, which is at least indicative of repentance. Blessed are those who repent, turn from sin, and then their life will be lived different so that they may have the right to the tree of life. Now, repenting in and of itself is not a salvation. That's not what saves me. It's the repentance is an expression of my faith. It's believing that saves. But that's expressed in repentance. That's never without repentance. Because what are you believing? That Jesus saves you so you can keep sinning? So they may have the right to the tree of life that they may enter the city by the gates. So now it's not a garden, now it's a city. Now it's a city. And there is a right to the tree of life. That's inheritance language. That's entitlement in terms of this is written in the will, this is what your father leaves you, it's written for you as a child, you inherit this. Your right to the tree of life is only a right because Jesus has extended it to you and made you a child of God. Without him, I have no right to the tree of life. I have no way to the tree of life. I have no possible uh, option except death without Christ. So Jesus says, hey, I can actually regenerate you by my spirit, make you born again, adopt you into my family. Then you have a right to the tree of life, which is a relationship with my father. You, You have a right to that. Don't let pride grow, though. Verse 17 says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. There's an invitation. Whereas Genesis 3, it's an exile and a removal, right? Through that removal, God would continue to invite specific individuals, use them along the way, progressively unfolding the story throughout history. And then, boom, it's an invitation to all people everywhere to come and taste. Let the one who is thirsty come. But the one who desires to take the water of life without price. So God is offering abundant life. Whether you see that as the living water of life, the rivers of life, or whether you see that as the tree of life, he's inviting us to come and know him.
through the Son. He's inviting us to come and enjoy Him and participate with Him and love Him and be loved by Him and be satisfied and be known and in the deepest parts of my soul be more fulfilled than any than than anything could ever offer me. The satisfaction God gives is beyond what this world could ever give you. This is what Jesus offers. Even though we lost the chance in Genesis 3 and we walked away, Adam and Eve representing humanity, God makes a way back. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16. I've made it very clear that I think Jesus very clearly in Scripture is the life that we need. The life we need. The question then becomes, how is it practically that I have life? So we're going to get into that now. More like the logistics of, well, how do I have life? I don't get it. Like, I know Jesus is life, but didn't sin keep us from life? So did, did, did God just kind of override that? Hebrews chapter 7 verse 16 talks about how Jesus established a new covenant. New terms and conditions. This time, it's not on, it's not on us to hold up our end of the bargain. Jesus says, I'll hold up y'all's end of the bargain. I'll hold up that terms of the covenant. God will hold his side. And Jesus says, I'll, as the perfect human, I'll uphold my end of the covenant. And it's established on his own life, death, and resurrection. So that when you believe in him, it's not you, uh, agree, it's not you upholding the terms of the covenant. It's you resting in Jesus who upholds it for you. So it's not your ability, it's his. But there is a responsibility on us to believe, to actually take refuge in Jesus who actually carries the burden. Hebrews 7, 16, it says he's become a priest, right? So if there's a new covenant, right? New terms and conditions, there has to be a, a new priest, high priest. Um, and he became a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that he's unstoppable and death can't hold him, that's what qualifies him to be our high priest, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, talks about how, you know, Adam definitely forfeited life. He did. You know, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That's, that's Adam living off of God, borrowing breath, existing because God sustains him. But the last Adam, Jesus, he's different. He became a life-giving spirit. And you go, ha, became. He can't be God if he became anything. He's not becoming anything more. He's becoming what we lacked, not what he lacked. There's no deficiency in Christ. There's no lack. He can't improve. What he does is he assumes human flesh, takes on our human nature, dies our death to actually win back what we forfeited. Right? So now there's spiritual life for us through him because he paid the debt. So now comes the question of, hey, well, how is it that Jesus can actually, like, legally, you might say, give us life? Because remember, we were exiled from the garden. What changed? Well, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So it comes through faith, right? John's Gospel will open like this, um, that in Jesus, in Him was life. And that life of Jesus, that was the light of men. That was the light of men. So we're made for the light. We're made for the life. But Jesus has that for us. But in order for that to be distributed to humanity, 
our sin has to be paid, our death has to be taken, our debt has to be absolutely taken care of, and legally there has to be a transaction of life for death, death for life, righteousness for unrighteousness. Jesus takes on the sin and the evil and the wickedness of the world in his flesh so that all of our consequences that we deserve are actually poured out on him. He stands in our place and he says, I'll pay their debt, I'll die their death. All the consequences that our sin deserves, he takes upon himself so that sin in the flesh of Jesus is punished. And you might say that's what breaks open the bread of life for us to be able to enjoy, is that he gave himself up. Uh, John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus says, look, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Because you go, I get it that Jesus is life and he offers life. But here's kind of the way into it. It's actually following him. Now that's not to say you sustain your own life by your own ability to perform and follow. He's just saying what it looks like to have life is to actually walk in the light with me. That's the light of life. It's found close to me. You want to walk in light, in life? Follow Jesus. John 6, it gets a little more clear. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Now watch. He gives life to the world. They said, sir, give us this bread always. Kind of like the woman at the well. Forever bread, forever water. Give it to us now. I don't want to keep working for food. Jesus goes, look, I am the bread of life. So what they're really asking for that they don't even know they are is they're asking for Jesus to give himself. That's what they really need. They're focused on like physical bread. Jesus is more interested in giving himself. He goes, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's the tree of life and uh, rivers of living life kind of metaphors right there. You eat from the tree of life. You drink from the river of living water. Jesus is saying, essentially, I am both. Come and eat. Come and drink. You're like, practically, what does that mean? It means believe. Abandon self-righteousness. Stop thinking you're morally good without God. Stop thinking my own efforts will get me into the kingdom and I'm adding that to the work of Christ. He gets me the way in, but I keep myself up by my own bootstraps. Stop. It's Jesus. He sustains you. He gives you life. And if he gave it to you as a free gift, why would you think it's up to you to upkeep it? John 6, 51. The implications of this are incredible. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Boom. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So what is it that Jesus offers? Well, himself. And if he is life, right? And if he says, I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven, you want to eat from me, he has to be broken open and distributed. Like, to follow the metaphor to its logical conclusion, he has to be broken open, and then that life is distributed to humanity. That's what the crucifixion is. It's Jesus breaking himself open, allowing himself to come under our penalty so that life can be distributed to us. Kind of like the, the feeding of the 5,000. 
the feeding of the 20,000, 15,000, whatever it is. So the bread he gives for our life, he says, is my flesh. So here's where we start to make sense of the transaction that takes place. You want his life, someone has to deal with your death. That's why he gives his life up. Because remember, all the way back in Leviticus, the life is in the blood. And Jesus sheds his blood. He gives himself up as a living offering, sacrifice to God, the Lamb of God, to pay for our sin and our death and our consequences. So now legally, I can actually have his life because I have no more record against me. There's a lot of legal kind of language that goes into that that I've talked about in previous times. Matthew 20, 28, it says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Now watch, it's not just Jesus giving his life in a, in a kind of purposeless way. It's actually as a ransom. Think about that. He's paying our ransom. We're held captive, sin, death, the devil, legally our master because of our own sinfulness. Jesus says, I've come to set you free. I've come to pay the ransom and cancel the debt against you. How? By giving up my life. Now, this is where we really start to make sense of how is it that the one who is life can offer me life? Well, because he gives up his life so we can have it. It's that simple. There's a giving up. There's a sacrifice involved. John chapter 10, kind of the same thing. John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, The thief comes only to steal, only to kill and destroy. Here's why Jesus comes, that they may have life and have it abundantly. What's the kind of life Jesus offers? Abundant life, satisfying life, fulfilling life. What does that involve? Temptation, suffering, the world persecuting you, having enemies, loving those enemies, uh, dealing with going through the valley, following the good shepherd, but also the highs of life, not just the lows. Because we go abundant life, yes, no trouble, no struggle. No, he didn't say that. Abundant life is again, John 17, 3, knowing God. While I'm going through all the crap the world throws at me, I know him. And he actually works all that out for my good. That's abundant life. It's not without the struggle and the persecution and, and the resisting temptation in the flesh. It's actually involving that. Romans chapter 5, it says, While we were enemies, if, while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. There's a much more statement. It's going, look, if God looked at you as enemies, and He brought you to Himself by sending His Son to die for you, right? how much more... Is he going to save you from the coming wrath now that you have the life of his son? Think about that. God looks at his enemies and go, hmm, I'm going to send my son to die for them. His death will result in their reconciliation. How much more is God going to say, now that you're my children, I'm going to save you from the coming judgment like Noah at the flood, right? Romans 5.18, you scroll down a little bit. If you can scroll in your Bibles. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Remember Adam. So one act 
of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's Jesus giving himself up. It results in our life. It results in our justification. I can now stand in the sight of God and be right and acceptable because someone who is life and is more valuable than life itself, he gave himself up to offer me his very life. Now I can be righteous. Now I can be just. Now I'm essentially connected back to the life-giving energy of God, symbolically represented by the tree of life and the garden presence of God. Here's also what plays into it. It's actually that Jesus has the authority to give life. Like, if I died right now, I said, I'm dying for the world, that wouldn't do anything. (laughs) That you wouldn't gain eternal life through me giving myself up. Well, maybe God would use that, but the point is, me letting myself be crucified doesn't mean the sins of the world are paid for. Why is it that Jesus is different? Well, Romans chapter 8, we're going to answer this. Uh, The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. You know, the law couldn't save you. It could just expose your inability and your your helplessness and your weakness and and your sin. That's all the law can do is point you to the one who can save you. How did God do what the law could not? Well, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So Jesus takes on our very human nature. He's not just a phantom. He's not just a ghost, kind of ghosting around going like, oh, I'm I'm so tempted. No, he actually got tempted. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. So Jesus gives himself up. In the body of Jesus, all sin and darkness and human evil takes up residency. God condemns that sin so that now we're free from that debt in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, Jesus is perfect. Jesus is blameless. He's righteous. He never makes a mistake, never makes any kind of failure. He's the blameless, um, perfect, unblemished Lamb of God. That's what distinguishes him from the rest of all of humanity. And by the way, he's the eternal word emanating from the Father that took on flesh. In other words, he came from heaven. He didn't come into existence at the virgin birth. His human nature, his human flesh came into existence. He put that on. He's always existed prior to it. And then he's righteous, so he can meet the righteous requirement of the law for us since he's perfect. And then he extends that righteousness to us. So he has authority. I'm telling you, John chapter 5 confirms this. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life. We've always known that the God of Israel, the Father, gives life. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. He is life. He gives life. He's over life. He commands life. But now, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whoever He wills. So now Jesus has the authority and the divine power to give life to whoever. For the Father judges no one. He's given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, you have eternal life. 
You don't come into judgment, but you've passed from death to life if you believe. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. This is talking about spiritually dead. People who are dead in their sins. Spiritually, they're separated from God by their sin. Those people will hear the voice of the Son of God in the gospel and the, and the calling Jesus is inviting them into. And those who hear will live. Just like Lazarus. This is kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen in John 11. Um, when Jesus resurrects Lazarus, brings him back to life, and those who hear will live. As the Father has life in himself, he's granted the Son to have life in himself. And you go, ah, see, Jesus is leaning on the Father to give him that. You understand that what he's saying there is by his life, death, resurrection, he becomes the perfect first resurrected human for us, and God divinely approves of that, so that his son, as the first resurrected human, can give us the very life that exists in himself. This is not uh, speaking of Jesus lacking authority or lacking power or going, Hey, Father, you know, I am weaker than you. This is Jesus gaining what we forfeited. And the Father validates, approves of that. The resurrection happens. And that life is distributed to us by the authority of Christ, which the Father confirms. And he goes, yeah. My son can give life to whoever he wills. He's resurrected. He's paid for their sins. He's died their death. He can be the representative we all need. That's what he's saying. Is now we have a representative and a mediator. Mediator who, you know, manages the covenant between us and God. That's Jesus. And if you're not convinced, Acts chapter 3. Uh, like you do on a Sunday morning, Peter accuses the religious elite for killing the author of life. Right here. You killed the author of life. When did... Hold on. The author of life. There's only one of those if there's one creator, right? If there's one who's over all life and gives life and distributes life and he is life. He's the author of life. He invented life. He invented life. And you go, yes, God. When did God die? Well, he's referring to the fact that God raised whoever they killed, the author of life. God raised him from the dead. Boom. The divinity of Jesus right in front of you. They killed Jesus, who is the author of life. So since he's the author and the one who invented life itself for us to experience and borrow, right? Since he's the one who gives us the very life force that we have as the source, wouldn't you say he has authority to do what he wants and give life to whoever he wills. Second Timothy 1 says, you know, that uh, therefore don't be ashamed of the testimony about Jesus, our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, Paul tells Timothy, share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Which, by the way, he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So you go, how does Jesus practically, 
how does that transaction work? I deserve death, but he gives life. Well, he actually abolished our death. He took care of that. The spiritual death we experienced from sin, he took that upon himself and was separated from the Father. And God forsook him in terms of giving him up to death. There was a separation that took place. There has to be. Otherwise, the penalty of sin can't really be handled. Because the debt and the payment or the debt and the consequence of sin is that we're separated from God. So Jesus experiences that in the form of the Father giving him up to death into the grave, pulls him back out, abolishes death, and then Jesus brings life and immortality through the gospel. First John 5 will answer the question a little better. I think this is the testimony God gave us, that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Period. The father has validated his son over and over. I approve, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. The baptism. This is my son. Listen to him. Mount of transfiguration. Whoever has the son has life. Period. Whoever doesn't have the son of God does not have life. You want life? You got to have the son. Not just spiritually eternal life, but what flows from that as a secondary thing is abundant life here on planet earth this side of heaven. That also comes from having Jesus in your life, knowing him, having a relationship with him. You don't, guess what? Life isn't possible. It's not. You can exist. You can have breath in your lungs. You can go to karate class and you can go to school and you can have a family. You can do everything you want. You're just merely existing and you're living on borrowed time and you're living on borrowed breath. For real substantial purpose and meaning and for a sense of this is life. I'm satisfied. You have to know the Son. You have to believe in the Son. And you have to have a relationship with God through the Son. If you don't, it doesn't matter how you qualify or define life. I don't care how you define it, frankly. Real life is to live forever with God in eternity, in a blissful state, ruling and reigning with Christ in the new creation. That's life, knowing God. You can define life as, well, I have a lot of money and I'm super happy, temporarily. Well, I got the, uh, everything I want in life temporarily. Well, I'm, you know, I'm super at peace with myself and I don't even think there's sin in my life temporarily. All that's going to come to light. All that's going to come crashing down when you stand before the living God and you realize I had no life. I just built my own little empire that came toppling down with the last breath that came out of my lungs. And now I, I realize I have no life. You can be a zombie wandering through the world thinking I'm alive. No, you're just existing. You're living on borrowed time and borrowed breath. And the way you give that up to God and the way you actually use it to its maximum capacity and the way you actually enjoy and be satisfied by life is to know Jesus, period. You don't have life. You, again, you can define it however you want and go, I have life. That's fine. You're not actually defining it correctly. True life is knowing God. And having the garden presence of God in your life. You don't have that without the Son. Like you understand that. <laughs> Romans chapter 6 verse 4. You can have religion and not have life. You can have good morality and not have life. Right? You can have the best job possible and the most beautiful healthy family and all the material possessions there are and all the financial security. You can be a you know have 13 million followers on Instagram and you can have the you know, everything perfectly aligned for you and still lack life because you don't have the sun. 
who I believe is what the tree of life is mainly to be symbolic of. It's the son who brings life and connects us to the father. Romans 6 verse 4 says, We were buried with him by baptism into death. Like when you believed. In order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you want to walk in newness of life? It requires you to know the Son, die to your old life, die to your sin, die to all the stuff you used to engage in, that dishonored God, die to that past, and come up a new creation in Christ through faith. You have to believe. You have to trust Christ with your soul, with your eternity, and believe that He's the only way into heaven and all your moral efforts and good deeds, and I've been a good person, and I've changed my life, and I broke that addiction, all of that can't get you into heaven. Jesus can. So now that we have life, now that we know the one who is life, what does it mean to enjoy this beautiful life? How do we fully engage with it? How do we actually enjoy the fullest sense of satisfaction and meaning and, and purpose in life that God has given us? Well, I would say you have to walk in the newness of life. There's a new way of life God has given you. It's pretty clear. The instructions can't be any more clear. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. Him hanging on that cross is him paying for your sins and taking your old life upon himself, dealing with that so that you can be free from it. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So symbolically, with Christ, being crucified is my old life. So now Jesus lives in me. Not only do I have life and I know life, life lives in me. That's who Jesus is. He lives in me. He wants to actually reveal himself through the way that I live so that other people have life, so that other people can taste and see that the Lord is good and actually see what life looks like through the way that I live. So when Jesus lives through me, he's inviting other people into this life. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. So what does it mean to live like fully and truly live by faith? Not by feelings, not by your own presuppositions, not by your own perspective that's distorted by sin and the world and culture, not for money, not for, by faith, by faith. So faith doesn't just save, faith is how I live. Faith in the Son of God specifically. So I live in such a way where the decisions I'm making are based on my trust in the Son who loved me and gave himself up for me. If that's not love, I don't know what love is. That's love. Jesus gives himself up. Philippians 2.16, Paul encouraging us to like not give in to the darkness around us. He goes, look, holding fast to the word of life. Oh, there it is. Who's the word? Jesus. Who's the life? Jesus. Who's the word of life? Jesus. The message from the Father that brings life, right? Jesus. So what does it look like to enjoy the fullest life? Well, you're holding fast to him. You're clinging to Him. You're abiding in Him. You're seeking Him. You're desperate for Him. So that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I may be proud. I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. I'm telling you, the fullest life is clinging to Jesus. That's what it is. 
That's literally what full life is. Is every day I'm just clinging tightly to him and I'm seeking his face and I'm sitting at his feet and I'm pursuing a deeper intimacy with him. And I'm saying, Lord Jesus, show me who you are. Father, show me who you are. I just want to know you. Not so I can brag, not so I can stand above people with my superior knowledge, not so I can feel this, this bigger ego building up in me, not so I can feel no longer insecure, but because I just long to know you. That's life. That's life. That's what you're made for. You're made to know him. You're made to walk with him. You're made, you're made to enjoy him and be loved by him. That's life. That's life. So if you spend your day doing none of that, you can totally be a Christian still. <laughs> We're not saying you're not. But if I go a day without seeking the Lord and knowing Him and, and enjoying Him and participating with Him in, in what He's doing in the earth and being loved by Him, if I don't do that, I merely existed today, man. And sure, God's going to use all even my failures and all my mistakes and all the things I didn't do. He's going to work it all out to good. But I could have had more. And I could have had more of Him. And I could have known Him better. And I could have had more faith when I live life. You can have more by knowing the word of life himself. That requires you to open your Bible. It does. It requires you to stop leaning on YouTube preachers. It requires you to possibly even stop tuning in here so you can go and read your Bible yourself. It requires you to actually evaluate what people are saying in the name of God and seek God for yourself so you can have discernment. So you can actually listen to what they're saying and go, hmm, I know the Father. That doesn't sound like him. It requires you to not let your Bible collect dust anymore and not just let your wife nag you and then finally I'll do it, fine, just to get you off my back. It requires you to love and seek for God yourself and pray and get around his people and worship him and thank him and praise him and delight in him and actually cultivate a life where holiness is, is growing in your lifestyle and you're becoming more like Jesus and remove sin and all these different things are happening because you're going, he bought my life and he's made way for me to experience abundant life this side of heaven and I'm going to stop till I have the fullest life in this side of heaven that he's offered me. He's given you all that you need for a life of godliness. You lack nothing in him. You just got to access it and want it and go after it, man. And not let complacency sink in. Oh, tomorrow. I'm busy. I'm busy ministering to God's people. I got to counsel too many people. Too many phone calls today. Too many, you know, church offering issues to deal with. Because again, Patty didn't actually like really give as much as she said. And church drama, right? Enough of that. Shut it down and sit at the feet of Jesus. That's life. And that's the only way you'll be led into the fullest kind of life God has for you here. Can you live less than what God called you to and still get into heaven? Sure. We're not saying like, hey, you just got to live a better life so you can make sure your seed in heaven doesn't have someone else's name on it. It's not what we're saying. We're saying if you have all of this available, why would you not utilize it? If you can know him as much as you dang well choose to, why would you settle for less? This is life. He's, he's not just inviting you to cling to Jesus and go, yes, my ticket to heaven. Now I can go do things I really enjoy. He's inviting you into delighting in him. So he's everything to you. He's inviting you into intimacy. 
He's inviting you into a deeper sense of who he is so that you, all the other stuff pales in comparison and fades to the background so that he is ultimate to you. He's inviting you into that. He's inviting you into actually seeing freedom from addiction and breaking chains and bringing life to other people and stop sitting on the couch and being a sponge that absorbs and sucks the life out of people. He's inviting you to be more. And it's not my own moral efforts and behavior and strength that's going to accomplish that. It's Jesus that does, but it's my job to sit at his feet. It's my job to know him. It's my job to surround myself with people that love him too so that my faith doesn't grow cold and I don't grow stale. That's my job. And God ain't going to do that for you. He's brought the tree of life to you in his son. He's brought you everything that we don't deserve in his son. And now that you have it, why would you let it sit on the shelf? <laughs> why? 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 Especially when there's so many people that need what you have. Why? Why would you settle for less, man? I got my five minutes of Devo time in today. That's fine. I'm not pressuring anyone to have more time, but I'm saying if that's what you're settling for and you're never wanting more than that, a verse of the day, a quick prayer when I'm... When I'm driving, if it doesn't go beyond that, and it's only I cry out to Jesus when I'm really desperate, what do you think God is inviting us into? What do you think we've been brought into? First John's all about we have fellowship with God. That's what we have. Everything else pales in comparison to that. Every day we're choosing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil instead of the tree of life, which isn't to say we're forfeiting salvation and we're missing out now and I lost my salvation. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying every day we're faced with our own. Will you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or will you lean on God as your everything and trust him and obey him and look to him and rely on him? What will you do? Will you let something else become more valuable than the presence of God? Will you give more emphasis and, and more put more investment in the worldly things that are going to perish and matter nothing compared to him? Use your money faithfully. Use the possessions you have faithfully. Honor his name with it. Be a good steward. Manage well. Those things aren't ultimate. That video game you're waiting for, you're going to plow through it in three days and be bored as crap. I'm telling you. James chapter 1 verse 12 is the last verse regarding life that I want to bring up today. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. We have the tree of life. We have the living, the rivers of living life and the waters of life. Now we have the crown of life. And that's promised to those who love God. It's not promised to those who white knuckle their way through Christianity. It's not promised to those who, who add their own moral efforts to Jesus' atonement. It's not added to those who are trying to be good on their own terms. It's added to those who love God. Now the endurance there and the steadfastness is the product or the expression of my love for God. So I don't endure and remain steadfast to replace loving God, I do that because I love Him. So we're not saying choose one or the other, but the main focus here is to love Him. 
That's what you've been invited into is a loving relationship with a father who will never leave you dry, who will satisfy you beyond anything you've ever known, who will give you the deepest desires of your heart when they align with his word because he shapes the way you actually desire things now and actually brings you into fulfillment and gives you joy and hope you've never known that requires you to cling to God as your life. And whenever the tree of the knowledge of good and evil presents itself in whatever form you're tempted by, you're going to know he's my everything. And I choose him. And I value him. And I love him. And I'll cling to him until he calls me home where I get to see him face to face. That, that is life. That is life. Not working for God as a mob boss. Not thinking God is holding me to a set of numbers and expectations. And if I don't fulfill it, I don't get into heaven. That's not what he's called you into. Obedience and service will be the expressions of love for God. But it's mainly, I love him. I love him. He is my life. He's, he's not just the one who gives me eternal life. He's not just my spiritual life. He is how I live life now is in him. He is my life. The sum total of my existence and my value and my purpose and my meaning and me being an image bearer of God, the sum total of that is wrapped up in who God is to me. He is that. He is my life. He doesn't just tell me how to live. He invites me to partner with him and know him better. Because if I don't, I will grow stale and cold and judgmental and self-righteous and I'll find myself doing things he never called me to with an ego he never told me to have because it dishonors his name. And that's dangerous. He's called you to know him. He is life. He really is. And to define life any other way is going to disrupt what God has called you to, period. Period. End conversation. If you guys don't know, this is our online ministry. My wife and I moved to Florida from California to start this online ministry. This is my full-time job to support my wife and two kids. And so if you want to know everything about this ministry, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. The link is in the YouTube description, okay? Or you can just go and Google it. Um, we have tons of free resources. We have free study devotionals. We have free online Bible study skills courses. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have free Bible study workshops. If you didn't catch it, we like helping people learn how to read the Bible. We like teaching and training. That's our mission, is to teach, train, and help people transform into the image of Jesus. And ultimately, we're moving people towards Christ, not by our efforts, but God makes our efforts worthwhile. He makes it amount to something. And so if you want to donate to this ministry, you can get our book, you can get some church merch, you can join our online church on the Discord app. Um, we're going to jump in a prayer session in about 30 minutes and, and fellowship. But if you want to give to this ministry and what God is doing here, again, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. You can donate through your debit or credit card. You can go to PayPal. You can go to Cash App. You can go to Venmo. You can give through Patreon. And there's a bunch of exclusive benefits you gain access to, like my sermon notes, um, the teaching material I use, discounts on church merch, a free copy of my book, based on the tier you sign up with. And by the way, if you don't have a copy of my book, snag it, it's a good Christmas gift, especially for a new believer, uh, especially for churches that are all about discipleship. That's why I created this resource. And so in the book, you'll learn about your purpose, the, your position in Christ, your identity, and the process God brings us through as his people. 
It's all framed up by the gospel. And so Jesus is at the center of all those things. And I think these are the essential keys to living the most abundant life this side of heaven. Speaking of life. Speaking of life. So I think that's it, guys. Thanks for joining in. We ended a little early today. Praise God. Not two hours, huh? And uh, is there anything else? Join the online church, man. It's free. We're in there like air day. Growing together as a community. If you're looking for a good online fellowship, a place of believers that love God and are growing together, man, come and join. The link is in the YouTube uh, description below or on our website. Go check it out. And I think that's it. So bye, guys. Keep moving towards Jesus.